we have used our sermon time on Sunday mornings to explore two Old Testament books. Since early August, I've been preaching through the book of Judges, and uh, when Father Ethan preaches, he's been preaching through the book of Ruth. Today, we come to the end of the book of Judges. Only one person is upset. Fantastic. I know that... <laughs> yes, yes. No, thank you for throwing me off my game. Appreciate that. Next week, Father Ethan will bring us to the end of the book of Ruth. Now, I, I can imagine that, that over the past few months, as we've been working through these two Old Testament books, that, that some of us may have been wondering, sometimes verbally, sometimes internally, why are we doing this? And folks, I think that's a fair question. Judges especially is, is full of difficult events and difficult people, difficult concepts. And, and let's be honest, wading through it can be a little bit like intentionally inflicting paper cuts upon our eyelids. It's hard, and it can be painful, and it can be difficult. But it is so very well worth it. At the very beginning of our series, back in August, I offered a few reasons as to why we were going to preach through Judges. And, and today, as Judges is wrapped, I want to go back to that sort of big idea that why are we doing this? And to help us remind, to remind ourselves why it's so incredibly important for us to pay attention to all of God's Word. So essentially this morning, I want to talk with you about the four reasons why we've spent time preaching through this particular book of the Old Testament. The first reason may sound a little bit funny to you, but as we'll see, it is something that we actually do have to defend from time to time. The first reason why we've preached through the book of Judges, preached through this Old Testament book, is first, it's in the Bible. The second reason why is uh, it reveals to us something about humanity that's important for us to see. The third reason why that we're, we preach through Judges is because what it shows us and how it reveals to us God and God's character. And finally, the reason why, the fourth reason why we've spent the last few months in the book of Judges revolves around how it points us forward to Jesus, the king that we need. I know that it may sound funny to offer this as an explanation for preaching Judges, but it has to be said, we preach through Judges because it is a book of the Bible. There are now popular pastors in America who are preaching that Christians and churches must, in their words, quote, unhitch the Old Testament from the new. Now, this is a new twist on an old theology, one long considered to be a heresy by the church. Uh, the most famous of the popular proponents of this new twist attempts to ground his argument for unhitching uh, in evangelism. He actually says in a podcast from late summer, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the argument. And folks, I would submit to you that this particular leader is guilty of both bad history and bad theology. He claims that there was no Bible until the year 400 or so uh, within the church. He claims that the church created the Bible. He claims that we have to unhitch the Old Testament from the New in order to proclaim Jesus. It's bad history because while it is absolutely true that Jesus, the apostles, and the earliest church did not have all of the Old and New Testaments bound between genuine or, or bonded leather or hardback or paperback or phone app, 
It is also true that the New Testament was progressively given over the course of the last half of the first century by the Holy Spirit, but it is absolutely false to say that Jesus, the apostles, or the earliest church didn't have something called scriptures or even the Bible. One scholar by the name of Mark Hamilton has pointed out that the word Biblia, the Greek word Biblia, from which we get the word Bible, means the books, and it was used by Greek-speaking Jewish men and women to refer to their sacred scriptures several centuries before Jesus. And so historically, we have always had, we the people of uh, the Bible, have always had sacred scriptures that were leaned upon, seen as authoritative for life and faith. And this is the testimony of Jesus, this is the testimony of the apostles, this is the testimony of the church. In Luke chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus was in the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath, and he took the scroll of Isaiah, he read from it. He went on then to explain what he read from Isaiah in terms of himself. He says, today I tell you this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Again, from the gospel according to St. Luke, this time in the 16th chapter, Jesus makes reference to the law and the prophets and to Moses and the prophets as an authoritative unit of Scripture. And then in Luke chapter 24, after his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. And there, St. Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus was not unhitched from the Old Testament. In fact, he claimed to be fulfillment of the Old Testament and was perfectly willing to rely upon the Old Testament to prove it. As Anglicans, we have a foundational document that's referred to as the 39 Articles really important for us actually to know and study. In the sixth article, we read this. Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation, so that whatever is not read therein nor may be proved thereby is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith or thought requisite or necessary to salvation. What it means there, we have to know what's in Scripture because that's what's required of us as believers. In the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. Why are we preaching through Judges? Why have we preached through Judges? Because it's in the Bible. It's in all of the, it's in the Bible, it's in the collection of books that have always been considered to be authoritative Scripture for the church. A part of the Scripture that Jesus himself used and relied upon and built upon because Jesus himself fulfilled And that's not just a testimony of Jesus, that's also the testimony of the earliest church, it's a testimony of the apostles. On the day of Pentecost, for example, uh, Peter explains this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, not by admitting, yes, we've been drinking wine at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's what they were accused of, being drunk. He said, no, this is fulfillment of Scripture. This is fulfillment specifically of Joel 2. And then as he discusses the resurrection of Jesus on that day of Pentecost, Peter quotes from Psalm 16 and from Psalm 110, relying upon the scriptures. In Acts chapter 8, Philip, while traveling with the Ethiopian eunuch, explained Jesus by beginning in Isaiah, specifically 53. When the apostles met in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 to discuss Gentile inclusion in the church and Gentile salvation, they used Amos chapter 9 and Genesis chapter 9 as authority for behavior of Gentile or as authority over the behavior of Gentile believers, all while freeing Gentiles and Jews really from the requirements of the law for salvation. 
Apollos in Acts chapter 18 showed by the scriptures, the Old Testament, that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens at the Areopagus, and he begins by talking about creation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when discussing the resurrection of Jesus, St. Paul writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then you have the letter to the Hebrews. Within its pages, you can't really even read a chapter without receiving some quotation or allusion to and from the Old Testament. I really could go on, but I think my point is clear We preach from the Old Testament because it's part of God's word, and it's always been that way. And while there are absolutely difficult things to understand, certainly the question why did this happen comes to our minds on a regular basis. There is no contradiction between the Old and the New Testaments. There is no contradiction between, quote, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. They are one and the same. And again, from our 39 articles, this time Article 7, The Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Why do we preach through Judges, a book like Judges? Because Jesus, the apostles, and the earliest church always relied upon the Old Testament as God's word, and so it should be for us. To leave the Old Testament out of our faith and preaching is to create a thin faith, a soft faith, a weak faith. To leave the Old Testament out of our life together would leave us with a faith that is unwilling and unable to wrestle with difficult things, one bereft of the rich heritage of all of God's revelation of himself through the word. If we unhitch the Old Testament from the new, we are left without the scriptures that Jesus himself used. None of this means the Old Testament is easy to understand. None of this means that we have all the answers. Rather, what this means is that we as believers have the responsibility not to edit the scriptures, but to wrestle with them, to hear them as we prayed last week, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. You see, all of scripture, from Genesis to the Revelation to St. John, is bound up in God's revelation of himself, is bound up in God's revelation of his actions, his works, and is bound up in revealing Jesus. As Albert Moeller has said, Jesus Christ is the church's one foundation, but we cannot know him apart from the Bible. And so this is why we've spent time preaching through a book of the Bible that we quite frankly tend to ignore to our detriment. It's in the Bible Judges is inspired by God, it is true and it's trustworthy, and through it, God reveals something about humanity. God reveals something about himself. God points us toward Jesus. And what does Judges reveal about humanity? Well, we have, I I think, I hope, made abundantly clear that uh, the book of Judges reveals humanity's tendency toward self-exaltation and self-determination. Israel, in the book of Judges, as a whole, wandered far from God as it turned to false gods and false idols, doing what was right in their own eyes, ignoring that which was right in Yahweh's eyes. Now, this is the way of sinful self-rule, and this is the major theme regarding Israel in the book of Judges. 
I think if we read Israel as the church and not as a geopolitical nation state, we can actually begin to discern habits of heart and dangers that come from the world and that are afflictions upon the church itself. The reality is either God's people will change the world or the world will change God's people. There's no neutral ground. And what we see in the book of Judges is the assimilation and the compromise with the world as the people of Israel were supposed to actually have been at work changing. The people of Israel were supposed to be changing the world, to, to be calling the world to faith in Yahweh, to exist as light. And yet, they became more and more confirmed, conformed to the image of the pagan nations around them, as David Beldman has said. And so I think Judges is a highly relevant book for the modern church of all cultures, but especially in our American context. One scholar has put it this way, like the ancient Israelites, we too are being squeezed into the mold of the pagan world around us. Our propensity to displace thy kingdom come with my kingdom come. And we see warnings of that in the book of Judges. We see warnings for God's people and Jesus Christ throughout the book. But we also see something else. For all their flaws, foibles, and foul-ups, the judges were used by God and are actually examples of faith. I have yet in this whole series to mention that judges are mentioned in the Hebrews chapter 11 Faith Hall of Fame. The chapter that we heard read from this morning, Hebrews chapter 11, begins, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And we heard this morning, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel and the prophets. What are we to make of this, right? We did a really good job, I think, of talking about Gideon and his, his failure to finish well. We talked about Barak and his, his sort of lack of enthusiasm for the call. We certainly talked about Samson and what a knucklehead he was. And we talked about Jephthah with his foolish vow and his sinful completion of it. And yet, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews includes them in the list of heroes of the Old Testament who lived by faith. Isn't that kind of weird? It's kind of weird until I think we start to really think about what's happening here. First, we need to recognize that none of the other heroes in Hebrews chapter 11 were without flaw, foible, or foul-up. All of them were real people with real characters, with real sinful natures. It's not their virtue that's celebrated in Hebrews chapter 11. It's their faith, their trust in God. Even when they couldn't see what God had promised, they trusted Him. And this includes the judges that are listed. We need to recognize, of course, that the judges did exercise faith, not consistently perhaps, but they did indeed exercise faith. Barak did go out with an overmatched and an outgunned army. Gideon did decrease his army and creep to the edge of the Midianite tent because he trusted God. Jephthah did raise up an army to battle, and Samson did act in faith, if nowhere else than at least at the end of his life as he shrugged. About this, Daniel Block explains, Hebrews chapter 11 is not a lecture on Old Testament text, but a sermon on faith, which is the key to accomplishing anything for God. The message here, he goes on, is that if anything positive was accomplished during the dark days of the judges, it was the work of God. What then does this reveal to us about humanity? 
Well, one of the things that I think the judges should help us do is actually encourage us just a little bit. Because, folks, whether we like to admit it or not, we are not without our flaws or foibles or our foul-ups. And yet what we see is that God will use those who have even a little bit of faith. God will use those to accomplish his ends, his means, and his purposes. God will use a man like Samson to accomplish that which he ordained, and he will use a man like me to accomplish something. Not because I am great, but because he is great. And you can insert your name for where I said me. This shows us that the true object of faith, of trust, is God himself and not us. This shows us that the true object of faith, of trust, is, is God and that which he will do. It's not us and our abilities. This shows us that God's people can be people of faith even while being sinful. It's not an acceptance of sin, but rather a statement of reality. God's people are justified by faith while at the same time dealing with a sin and a sinful nature. Which is why, by the way, we always need to be gospeled. This shows us that God in his strange providence is quite willing and quite able and maybe even happy to use human beings who are far from perfect, who are works in progress. And it shows us who is truly responsible for that which is attempted and that which is achieved by faith, God himself. In his testimony about humanity, Judges reveals something about God as well and God's character. Overwhelmingly, the book of Judges reveals God to be holy and loving. And we've said this before time and time again. God is holy. He is perfection. He is the essence of what it means to be without sin, to be righteous. And he will not stand idly by as his people sin. He will not stand idly by as his honor is besmirched, as the glory that was rightfully his is given to another in worship. Because God is holy, God cares for his people. He loves them, and so when his people wander from him, and as we sing on a regular basis, we are prone to wander, he corrects them. He sometimes disciplines them in a harsh and even painful way. As the author of Hebrews points out in chapter 12, verses 5 through 13, God disciplines his children for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It seems to be what God does in the book of Judges. Because he's holy, he must deal with their sin, and he does. But because he is loving, he does this in a way of discipline to bring them back to himself. His desire in this discipline is to, to bring them to repentance and thus back to life in him. And while it may seem harsh, I think we can say this is actually grace, another aspect of God's character. Now, we think about it, if you are an earthly mom or dad, you wouldn't just let your child get away with any behavior possible, right? Discipline is a sign of love. Discipline is a sign of holiness on God. It's also a sign of His grace. Grace which shines through as He operates and continues to operate on behalf of His covenant people. Even when His people are unfaithful, God remains faithful and operates for them. He does more than what is expected. He certainly, as he is merciful and gracious, goes beyond what they deserve and what they can possibly expect. In the book of Judges, Yahweh is, is shown to be slow to anger. He is shown to abound in steadfast love, this word hesed, which is sort of this idea of loyalty. Yahweh abounds in faithfulness and truthfulness. He is holy and he is forgiving. He persists with his people because he's merciful. 
gracious, slow to anger, patient, full of steadfast love, true, just, and forgiving. God is gracious to those who turn to him in the book of Judges, and God persists in this today. Now God's grace is made manifest in the incarnation of the eternal Son, Jesus the Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended to reign as king and who will come again. That's the final reason why we preach in the book of Judges, because it points toward Jesus. It points towards Jesus in two primary ways. First, if we go back to humanity just for a second, we're pointed towards Jesus as the need of a king is revealed to us. That repeated refrain in the book of Judges is that there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The idea is they ruled over themselves. Chaos ensued. What happens in our lives when we attempt to rule over ourselves? When we attempt self-determination, sure, things may go well for a little while, but eventually, chaos will ensue. And so, like Israel, we see that we need a king. Our unruly hearts, our unruly desires, our unruly affections, our unruly allegiances, we need a king who, who can do more than just hand down laws to change our external behavior. We need a king who can actually change our internal being and thus change our outward doing. We need someone who can fix us. God desired to be the king for his people Israel, and God still desires to be the king for his people now. Entrance into his kingdom comes through Jesus, who fulfills the promises God has made. Jesus lived a, per a perfect life. It imputes his righteousness upon all who believe. Jesus died for the sins of the world and justifies all who would believe. Jesus rose in conquest over death and gives new life to all who would believe. And through Jesus, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all who believe so that they may be God's people truly human. Judges points us towards our deepest need, which is Jesus. Second, the judges themselves point towards Jesus by comparison, by contrast. By comparison, Jesus and the judges were divinely called and equipped for the mission of salvation, the mission of delivering the people of God from the enemies of God and bringing them to faithfulness. But by contrast, Jesus is the true and faithful judge who is true and faithful to the Father. By contrast, the judges weren't kings, but Jesus is the king who rules now and is awaiting the moment in which he returns to establish his kingdom upon the new creation. By contrast, the deliverance the judges were able to secure was only temporary and fleeting. It lasted only as long as the judge lived. But the deliverance that Jesus has secured has won for all who would believe in him through his crucifixion and resurrection eternal life. And so we see in the book of Judges, pointing forward to the greatest judge, Jesus. The King, Jesus, the only one who brings the fullness of truth, the fullness of life, Jesus. And so as Judges is wrapped, there are four reasons why we've spent the last few months here in this book. Judges is in the Bible. It's part of God's inspired revelation and is thus part of the story of our adoptive family. Judges shows us our need for God's work of salvation and how God uses us, even us. Judges reveals God as holy, gracious, and merciful. And Judges points us to Jesus, the greatest judge, the king we need. And so as Judges is wrapped, 
May what we have heard from it change us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may we continue on, continue on reading, marking, learning, and inwardly digesting judges and the rest of God's word that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and we give you thanks. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left yourself without witness and testimony, that you have given us your word. And we pray again, Lord, that you would mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under Jesus' most gracious rule. Be glorified as we sing your praises, Lord, our creator. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship as we sing. <laughs>